Well, good morning, Four Points. And it is good to see you today. And if you're visiting with us today, and I see a few, we're really, really happy you're here today. And we pray that God just draws you into our community here so that we can work and serve the Lord together here with you. Um, We're going through a series, as you know, from last week. It's going to be going on for the next six weeks. Um, well, five weeks, including today, called the daily grind, right? And we know what the daily grind is. That is the day-to-day stuff that we have to do. In our culture, we're used to coming to church, right? We encounter God at church. You know, you may spend some time with the Lord every day in the morning, the afternoon, listening to a podcast, whatever it is, and you experience the Lord there. Um, You might be going through something in your life that's difficult, and you say a prayer to God, and you encounter the Lord there, and you may even pray before dinner. Right, And you thank God for that time together with your family and the food, and you encounter God there. But all the stuff in between, sometimes we are so tempted to just think of that as something different. We spend so much more of our time driving to work, driving home from work, going through our task list, making those phone calls, those things we have to do day to day to day, the daily grind. And where does God meet us there? Where is God involved in those everyday decisions that we make? And last week we talked about like right in the very beginning, like what it means to have your life fully surrendered to Jesus. We had baptisms, guys, seven people baptized last week. We are thanking God for that still. And God is going to do more and more and more and more of that as we make Jesus more central in who we are and in our lives. Well, today in our Daily Grind series, I want to talk about something very real to us. Who was here probably a month ago when we talked about stress? Anybody here when we talked about stress? Can I get an amen, right? We needed that talk. Um, We need to know where God is in the midst of our stress because we all deal with it, right? It's, It's a huge issue in our society. So today we're going to talk about another huge issue in our society. I'd say just as big as dealing with stress is dealing with conflict. Do you have any conflict in your life? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're laughing. Amen, right? Joy of the, of the Spirit. Because we relate. Our lives are filled with conflict. I would gamble that every one of us, if not most of us, are dealing with conflict in a relationship at least. Most of us have a broken relationship with someone today. Right? Somebody said something. Somebody did something. You said something. You did something. Maybe you haven't talked to someone for years, but we are all dealing with conflict, but most of us don't know how to deal with conflict. Most of us, conflict comes into our lives and we react to it. Right? And many times the way that we react to conflict doesn't help. I'm preaching to me. Right? Because we're hurt. We're frustrated. And so relationships keep on getting broken in our lives. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 2. This is a passage we've talked about a few times, guys. We're pulling more and more out of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, Make room for us in your hearts, We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. 
I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness because I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. How many of you know that conflicts in your life cause fear within? But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you'd given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. What's Paul talking about here? I love passages like this because aside from Paul's teaching, and he's doing some teaching here, we get a glimpse into what life was like for Paul. As an apostle of Christ, he had conflict. He had so much conflict that it caused fear. And he was thankful for those who were in the church who recognized that, right? They comforted him. They saw the conflict. They were concerned for him. Paul, the apostle Paul, knew what conflict was. He was dealing with it, just like we are. In fact, in our culture, guys, we are surrounded by conflict. There is conflict everywhere. People are making big money off of big conflict. And we buy into it. We have conflict because of political tension in our culture, right? Here's where it really hits the road for us when we decide that our political views are more important than another person. Do you have a broken relationship today because somebody has different political views from you? We have conflict in our culture because of racial tension. Guys, there is not equality in America. That's a whole nother sermon. I better not go too far down that road. Down the road, we're going to talk about racial tension. But here's, here's what we think. We look at our lives and we think everyone else's life is just like ours. We look through these eyes and live through this skin and we think everyone else's life is just like ours. And we fail to have compassion and to understand where people's lives are different. And they are different. But oftentimes we're too lazy to see why. We don't want to know. There's social economic tension in our culture. Here's what social economic tension is. It's when I treat someone as less than because they don't have influence and they don't have money. Do you ever see that at work in your life or around you? The opposite is also true. We have conflict because we give preference to people who have more influence and have more money. Some of the relationships we have are just because we think they're going to get us somewhere. And both of these are wrong, guys. They cause conflict. We have professional conflicts with a boss <laughs> or a coworker, right? Your boss comes in and he's like, what the child? Like he just hits you with something, right? And you're like, God, I hate that guy. <laughs> we know what it's like to have conflicts in our family. Nobody fights as good as family fights, right? That's where the crap hits the fan. 
right? Conflict with our spouse, conflict with our kids, conflict with our mother and father-in-law. You know, my mother and father-in-law are here today and they are a blessing. <laughs> Haven't had a fight with them, but I know that ain't typical, okay? Sometimes we have conflict at church. Who'd have guessed it, right? Recent studies tell us that a lot of our anxiety comes from broken relationships. Think that's true? You might think, well, you know what? I cut that person out of my life. Therefore, it's not in my heart and mind anymore. And we know that's not true, right? It bugs us. We think about it. It doesn't just go away. When relationships are broken, it lingers in our lives and causes us stress. Some of the conflict in our lives totally surprises us. Have you ever been blindsided? We all have, right? Somebody said something, did something. Maybe you've blindsided somebody else when you said something or you did something, right? Sometimes it's passive, like conflict comes our way. Sometimes we cause conflict. Most of the time, it's both. Something I've learned as a pastor, there are two sides to every story. That doesn't invalidate your story, right? But there are always two. There are always two perspectives in a conflict. We all experience conflict, guys, but most of us don't know how to handle it. And it gets worse. So what do we do? Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 16. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today. You okay with that? All right. Amen. Romans 12, verse 16 says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. That's one of the reasons we have conflict. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Guys, here is God's expectation for his church when it comes to conflict. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do you know that the testimony of Christ is wrapped up not just in the fact that you came to know Jesus, but also in how you and I choose to live our lives for Jesus? Right? Is, is, is your life a testimony even when someone wrongs you? Even when there's conflict? Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Do you hear God's heart in this? When we go around trying to make peace, we look like God. We look like sons and daughters of a father who did everything to be reconciled with us or for us to be reconciled to him through Jesus. So as a Christian, being a peacemaker is the goal, but guys, it ain't easy. Starting down this road is probably not something we're going to fix today. It's a journey. It's a journey that can start today. But if we're going to be peacemakers, like God wants us to be peacemakers, 
there are a few things that we need to understand about conflict. Now, I want you to take notes today so you can go back and look at this when you have conflict like you don't have now, okay? Number one, we need to understand that conflict isn't always a bad thing. Conflict's not always bad. Who wants an election with no contenders? You know, what if it was like, in America, it was like, well, whoever says they want to be president first gets to be president. It's not what we want. We want disagreement. We want challenge. We want to be able to choose who we elect as president, right? That's a good conflict to have. What about a race with only one runner? I would love that. I'm not a cardio fiend. You can tell that. I, I ain't running miles like Jenny Scott. I'm getting my steps in one step at a time. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen for you step counters? What about a conversation with just one opinion? First person that speaks counts. Right? That's not what we want. You know why? Because we'd all be idiots. We need people to challenge our opinions. We need people to be challenged by our opinions. This is how we grow. This is how we learn. Right, so conflict isn't always bad. Healthy churches, healthy families, healthy marriages have a certain amount of conflict. Sometimes people, when we do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, I'm just honest. I say, you know what, we've been married for 16 years, we still fight. Sometimes people look at me like, oh, wow, it's safe here. You know what I mean? Or they're like, oh, not us, you know. <laughs> We're not going to fight. Yes, you will. If you, if you love your spouse, you will fight, right? Because you have an investment. I can't just be passive in the decisions that my wife makes, like they don't matter to me because I care about her. I could be wrong, but I'm going to state my opinion, and I'm thankful that she states hers because she challenges me and grows me in ways that help me be more like Christ. Churches are the same way. You guys heard me say before, we had a talk not that long ago called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Anybody remember that? And one of the points I made was this, God didn't create the world for perfection, but for redemption. Well, here's another statement, and it's like it. God didn't create the church for perfection, but as a proving ground for our love and commitment to grace. Did you know that we're here to learn something? And we ain't going to learn it if it ain't challenged. A certain amount of conflict in church is a good thing if it's healthy conflict. God never intended the church to be conflict and problem free. If your church is conflict and problem free, you're probably not growing and you're probably not accomplishing much. You know, if your message is, oh, at my church, we never disagree. I'm like, red flag. Number one, that can't be true. Or number two, maybe you're so dominating, you just shut everyone else up. But that's not good for anybody. God created community to teach us a couple things. Here's why we come to church, guys. To learn humility. Because <laughs> you're not always right. I'm not always right. And to learn to love others the way God loves us. If we're not challenged, we don't grow. If our love isn't challenged, we don't really know we love each other, right? It's when we go through the tough times together that we trust each other. 
This is what community is for. So sometimes conflict shows that we care. It's not always bad. But when do we know that conflict is a bad thing? Here's how we know that conflict is a bad thing. Number one, when it's not addressed. If something happened to you or you did something to somebody else and you just can't talk about it, that's a problem. When it causes a break in relationship, that's not good conflict. That's not what we want. When it breaks a trust, when we do something or someone does something to us that breaks our trust or breaks their trust, that's not good conflict. It's not healthy conflict. Or when it causes someone to be hurt. When there's hurt and you feel like you can't tell someone that you're hurt, that's bad. Or when you've hurt someone but they don't feel like they can come to you and tell you that they've been hurt, that's bad. This is the kind of conflict, guys, that we can't overlook. This is the kind of conflict that we have to learn how to resolve. And here's why we have to learn to resolve it. The second point today is God thinks resolving conflict is important. Resolving the conflicts in your relationship is very, very important. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. This is the Old Testament, right? And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see how he raised the bar there? Jesus said it's not just about your actions, it's also about your heart. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is like you're an idiot, you're damned, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, is what we were doing just a little bit ago in worship, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. This is such a strong passage, guys, but listen, conflict in our lives is so important to God that it hinders our worship. Here's the difficult truth this passage says to us today. If you've showed up at church today to worship, but you haven't made things right with that person you hurt, go ahead and stop worshiping. Go make that right and come back. Jesus says, if you're leaving a wake of hurt people in your path, don't bother. Because God cares about that. It matters to him. Our relationship with him should be reflected in our relationship with other people. And God is not just concerned about our relationship with him. He's very concerned about our relationship with the people around us. Have you ever felt like, I'll be sorry, but not right now? Right? That's me. I want to be like, baby, you're right. I'll tell you tomorrow. You know what I mean? Right now, I want to be right. Or here's something we do as Christians all the time. We wrong someone, we offend someone, we hurt someone. And then we say, um, we feel God's conviction. We say, God, I'm really sorry that I did that to that person. Thank you for forgiving me. And then we never, because of our pride, we never bring it up with the person we hurt. Do you want to know what God says to that? He's not interested. He doesn't want an apology from you 
that you're too proud to give to the person you hurt. I mean, that's what that says, right? That's a difficult passage, but listen, guys, as your pastor, I'm gonna tell you this right now. I am committed to the word of God. I can be wrong. This can never be wrong. I have all of my stock here. It's important to study psychology, I have. It's important to understand sociology and how people work, I have. But that never trumps the truth of God's word. And God's word says that that broken relationship is a barrier in our worship. So if this is true, we recognize what conflict is bad in our lives and we recognize how God feels about that conflict, what do we do? Our third point this morning is this. We should, here's where we start when you have a conflict in your life. We should always assume the best. This is a responsibility we have as Christians. When something happens, we should always assume the best. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What's this passage saying? Is this passage saying that I should never tell someone they're wrong? Some people think that. You've heard me say before, I saw someone on the side of the road with a shirt that said, only God can judge me. And I was like, you idiot. You don't want God to judge you. <laughs> what are you going to do? Like store up all of your sins until you look God in the eye? That's not brilliant. Isn't it better if somebody else tells you first? Right? It is. It is better. What this passage is saying is that you and I can judge actions like if we see somebody do something, we can say, look, man, I'm concerned about you. I saw this, right? Or I heard this. Or we can go to someone and we can say, you know what? What you said to me hurt me. Or maybe what you said to them hurt them. What I can do is judge their heart. I can judge the actions. I can't judge the heart. I can't presume upon why they did it. All right, let me give you an example. If I go to take out the trash, or I forget to take out the trash, or Corbin goes, forgets to take out the trash. It's his job. And he doesn't take out the trash, and I say, Corbin, you just don't care. You don't care about anything that I say. That's why you didn't take out the trash. What's your problem, man? Right, I'm doing more than talking to him about the trash. I'm talking to him about his heart. I'm talking to him about his motive. I can't do that. Because what if he just forgot? Right? What if he just forgot to take out the trash? What I should do is say, buddy, you forgot to take out the trash. You probably forgot. But could you do it now? You see how I assumed the best? This is what God wants us to do. Or maybe somebody's short with you. Like somebody, you go to work, somebody just tells you off. That's wrong. You can tell them that it bothered you when you were told off. But you can't judge why. You can't be like, they're a jerk, that's why. Right? Like maybe they got yelled at before they came in your office. Hear me, that doesn't make it right. Because the actions matter, but it does matter that we assume the best. You know what? You probably didn't have a good morning and you probably didn't mean it that way, but I took it this way. 
Assuming the best is the first step. You know, because here's why, guys, we're not qualified to judge the heart. As brilliant as we think we are, (laughs) we don't know what's going on in someone's heart. We can't see that. We haven't been given that skill set. You know who does judge the heart? God. But he does know the heart. Right? In the illustration, the language in the Bible is like like talking about archery. Like it's talking about when we judge, it's like us shooting an arrow. Right? But we keep missing. Like if we shoot an arrow from a pretty good distance, unless you're just a pro, right? But you're never a pro at conflict. You're shooting this arrow. You might nail one. You might say, oh, I know why they did that. And you might occasionally be right. But more times than not, you're going to miss. Now, the difference with God is that when he pulls that arrow back and shoots that target, he hits dead center every single time. So we have to let God judge the heart. We can't do that. We can only judge people's actions. Therefore, we need to assume the best. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Here's what he's saying. Assume the best. Judge actions. You can't judge the heart because one day, everyone is going to stand before me and all of the secrets of the heart will be revealed. And then God will judge. God, Listen, God, rest assured, God will reveal the motives of men's hearts, including yours. Including yours and mine. You see, when, God, when we're standing before the Lord and he's talking to us about our lives, which the Bible says is going to happen to everyone, believer or non-believer. Nobody's going to be like, yeah, get them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's about time. Because when we stand before God, we're going to see them and us the way God sees us both. You know what I think we're going to be saying? God have mercy. God have mercy. Thank you, Jesus. But when we have conflict, the very first step is to assume the best. Sometimes, many many times, it goes beyond that right? There are still actions that we need to talk about. There's a conflict that's bigger than just assuming the best. Sometimes you can overlook it. Sometimes you can assume the best and you're like, hey, I know, I know that person good enough. I, I can let that go, right? I know they didn't mean that. But sometimes we have to confront someone about what they've said or done. Do you know that the Bible actually gives us like a detailed description of how to do this? Some things in the Bible are confusing. The gospel is not. Right? Jesus died for you. And how to resolve conflict is not because he tells us exactly how to do it. Listen to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, no duh, they do, right? We do. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, so what we have here is a very guided description of how to handle conflict in our lives, but we have to unpack it because this is also one of the most misrepresented, misused passages in the Bible. So let's take just a moment to walk through what this passage is actually saying. What it's saying is the church at its core is relational. In God's economy, relationship is important. That's why we have these instructions. We understand God's grace better when we see it in the lives of other people. And it's vital that what we experience and what the world sees is according to God's clear direction. So you came to know Jesus, you and I did, right? And that's a testimony to the world. The way you and I handle conflict in our lives is also a testimony. Because people are watching. Or the person we're offended with. Or the person who's offended us. So here, there's three steps in resolving conflict. Here's what they are. Number one, we go to the person who offended us or hurt us alone. We don't like this. This is uncomfortable, but you can't skip step one. When someone hurts or offends you, you have to go to them and talk to them one-on-one. And just say, look, man, like you, maybe you didn't mean it that way, but that hurt me. Guess what? They may look at you and say, you know what? I didn't mean it that way. I'm very sorry. Problem solved. Right? But many times we don't give someone an opportunity to be wrong. Even though every friend of ours will inevitably be wrong. They're destined for it. Just like us. So the Bible says go to them. Step two, we go to the person who's offended or hurt us with a friend. So maybe you went to someone and they were like, hey, screw you. Right? I don't care. The Bible says it's time for step two. Go with a mutual friend. Go with a small group leader, right? Like go with someone else. I call this wearing a seatbelt. Or causing someone else to wear a seatbelt. How many of you know that when you're in an argument with one other person, the behavior gets bad? But when there's a third person in the room, everybody tends to behave a little better. Right? That's what you're doing. You're just bringing somebody else along to talk about it. Now, if that person still looks at you and says, I don't agree with you, I don't care, go away, there's step three, right? And this is for Christians. This is how Christians handle things. We go to our spiritual leaders for assistance. Guys, there's an appropriate time where if there's conflict in the church here between two of you, that you come to a church staff member and you say, you know, I need a little help with this. And we'll do that, right? We're there to help with that. We're there to help you walk through that, but that's step three. The problem is we've created some false patterns in our lives for how we handle conflict. Number one, we're too passive. Sometimes we just don't address it, don't address it, don't address it, don't address it. While in the meantime, and we'll see later, it just makes our hearts more empty, more burdened, more empty, more burdened. We we think we're letting it go, but we're not really letting it go. Until the point that something bad happens. And we're going to get into that. The other thing we do is we gossip. Hey, I got a prayer request for you. 
Somebody really needs your prayer. Guys, you don't have any business telling someone else that you've been hurt by someone if you have not talked to them. You've got to talk to them. Don't gossip through prayer requests. <laughs> Sometimes we fast track, right? We want to go to the boss first. Right? I, I get phone calls, man. People are like, well, I had having this conflict with somebody, you know, pastor, you know, can you sit down with them? You know what I do? I say, have you sat down with them? No, you just, you know, but it, you know, it just affects this and that. Okay, well, call me back. Let me know what happens when you talk to them. Okay. Sometimes people call me and I say, did you go with a friend? No, I talked to them, but I, you know, I didn't go with a friend. All right, well, go, with, go to them with a friend. Text me, call me, let me know what happens. Right, sometimes we want to fast track. It's at work too, right? Somebody does something to you, you go straight to the boss. Right, let's get their butts fired. Don't do that, man. Go to them first. God's program works. Here's the other way we get it wrong. We think that we're on equal terms. There's not equal terms. Do you know that there's a cost to spiritual leadership? You know that as your pastor, if there's a conflict between me and you, that it's actually my responsibility to be the first one to talk? If I've done something wrong, I shouldn't wait for you to tell me I did. It's my job to seek you out. That's what it means to be a spiritual leader. In your family, gentlemen, God made you the leaders in your home. That's a whole other sermon. Sometimes you have to define that with people because they don't understand what that means. But being the leader in your home means you're the number one servant in your home. Do you know what that means? That means when my wife and I have a conflict, it's my responsibility to always be the first to apologize. If she beats me to it, double bonus. But what God expects from me as a spiritual leader in our home is that I'm always to be the first. Parents with your children, even your grown children, if there's a conflict... You're the leader. You bear the weight of responsibility in leadership to make it right or to take the first steps to make it right. I want to put up this chart. I don't think it looks very good. That's because I made it. <laughs> now, I read a book called um, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's an excellent book on making peace and conflict. You should read it. But I, I kind of adapted this and made it my own a little bit. Um, but what this represents is the slippery slope on both sides of conflict, okay? At the very top is reconciliation. That is always the goal. In every conflict we might have, God wants reconciliation. And then on the right, we have attack responses. This is for you people who when there's a problem, you fix it, Right? Like, I, you don't have a problem going to somebody, right? You're going to do it. And the left are passive responses. For those of you who are like, you know, I, I avoid conflict. I don't want to go talk to somebody else. 
So it starts at the top. There are healthy responses on both sides. In the blue are our healthy conflict responses. Right? On the right is conflict, like we just talked about, those three steps. It's right to confront someone the right way. That's healthy. That's what God wants us to do. Sometimes it's also okay to overlook something. There are some things you shouldn't overlook as much as you want to. But some things we can. But there's a very slippery slope once we get outside of the healthy. If we're not prepared to confront someone the right way and walk through these steps, it doesn't take very long for there to be resentment in your relationship. I don't like that person. I hate that person. If that person's at the store, I'm going to a different store. Right? You know what I'm talking about. We've all been there. But if we let resentment fester, it turns into assault. Now that can take different forms. It doesn't mean you're going to punch someone in the face. You might be afraid to punch someone in the face. But you can still hate them. You can still lash out. But it's a slippery slope. And the end of that road is murder. If you, if you can't confront someone in a biblical way and let God deal with your heart, this slope is very steep. Most people who murder someone didn't think they would ever murder someone. They just didn't handle it God's way and it slid. It just, it spiraled, right? Now on the passive responses, you can be the kind of person who thinks you have to overlook everything because you don't want conflict. You're a peace faker. You pretend everything's okay so you don't have to deal with it. But that turns into denial where you start to believe there's not a problem. The problem with that is when you believe there's no problem, you really start blaming yourself. If you can't address it with someone else, you really start blaming yourself, which turns into flight where you just avoid people. You avoid conflict. You run away from it. But it doesn't go away, does it? It lingers. And the end of that road is suicide. That's the ultimate way to flee. That's the ultimate way out. You feel like you can't deal with it anymore and there's only one thing left. Now these are slippery slopes that we can go down if we can't handle things in the blue. If we can't handle things the way that God tells us to handle conflict. Now, when we go to someone to confront, here's two really important things to remember about that. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Parents like to use this passage to tell their kids not to cuss. Okay, kids don't cuss. But that's not what this passage is about. This word for unwholesome talk is like corrupting, rotting talk. Okay? but only what is helpful for the building of others up according to their needs, that it may benefit or give grace to those who listen. When you decide it's time to go to someone, step one, you have to put in the time to think about what is the best way for me to say this where they're most likely to receive it. Like going and kicking their door in, probably not going to work. Guys, confronting your wife just before bed, probably not a great idea. Preach. <laughs> Ladies, talking to your husbands during dinner, 
Probably not a great idea. You know, you don't get between a, a wolf and his prey, you know. Um, but we have to think about that. Okay, how can I say that? When can I say that? In a way that reconciliation is most likely to take place. God wants you and I to, to do that. The other thing we have to remember is that the only person we can control with God's help is ourselves. You may try to reconcile with somebody and they just won't have it. That's why the Bible says as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Remember we were talking about stress. Stress is taking responsibility where you don't have authority. It's the same in conflict. God has an expectation that you and I will pursue reconciliation as far as it depends on us. And the last thing that we have to remember today about conflict in our lives is that grace should define us. Boy, if there's a defining factor for Christians, when people look at us, they should see grace. They should see forgiveness. They should see patterns of reconciliation. Now listen, it's not always possible. You may have been sexually abused. I'm not telling you to go to your perpetrator. Right? I'm not telling you, I'm not te- there, there are times where it's not appropriate to go have a one-on-one conversation with someone. But most of the conflict we face falls right within this. Our lives being characterized by grace. Listen to John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. It's like Jesus saying, look, you guys know the Old Testament. There's a New Testament coming. Jesus is here. He's preaching the gospel of grace. He says, a new command I give you. Above all this other stuff, all these rules and laws, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, or my disciples and disciples. If you love one another, our lives should be characterized by this love. Our lives need to be characterized by grace. Our lives need to be characterized not by all of, of, of the bodies of people we've hurt behind us as we plow ahead through life, getting where we want to go, but by, by the reconciliation we find in the broken relationships that are inevitable. How many of you have seen the movie, I Can Only Imagine?, about Bart Millard from Mercy Me. Great movie if you haven't seen it. There's a part at the end where Bart Millard, you know, he, had, he went through some abuse with his dad. You know, he goes home for a night and he finds out that his dad has been reading his Bible, is trying to make his relationship right with God, is trying to make his rela- relationship right with his son, but it's very hard, right? It's very hard when somebody's abused you to forgive them. Even if they're trying to make it right, it's very difficult. I'm not going to minimize that. But there's a scene when, when, you know, Bart Millard rejects that attempt by his father. That his father just breaks down, goes out in the garage, is just screaming out loud, beating on a truck that he was trying to fix up, you know, with and for his son, you know, and collapses on the ground. And, and we all had tears at that moment, right? But my daughter, Chrissy, she's a little blonde doing cartwheels up and down the hallway. You know, she says what we're all thinking. She goes, I can't watch this. Because she could sense the burden of unforgiveness. 
And in that movie, what Bart Millard had to learn was that you, that Christ forgave us. We have to forgive others. We have to. How could we not? You know, when Jesus gives us this way, these three, these three steps in resolving conflict, he ends it this way. And I want you to listen close because this is a very misinterpreted passage of the Bible. It says this, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. The church has misinterpreted this for generations and it's sickening. We get this idea that if somebody's unrepentant, we should banish them from the church. Since when does the Bible teach us to treat lost people that way? Is that how Jesus treated tax collectors? Is that how Jesus treated non-Jewish Gentiles? Of course not. We have this idea of send them away. Really, that's our pride. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like someone to think we're wrong. Send them away. But what this passage is saying, guys, it's saying, look, if somebody's gone through these three steps and they're still not sorry, it's probably because they don't have the Holy Spirit. It's probably because they don't know Jesus. I'm sorry, if you're a part of Four Points and you're walking out conflict and after these three steps, you don't feel like you need to resolve anything, I'm going to question whether or not you really know Jesus. Because those who freely receive grace, give it away. I know people who've been sent out of churches because they did something wrong. How dare that church? These doors will never be closed to sinners. Never. You want to know why? Because you and I don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be here. But God. So if somebody is living it out this way, they're probably not a Christian. So how do we treat non-Christians? We try to show them the love of Jesus. We realize, you know what, maybe the conflict isn't the big issue for this guy. Maybe coming to know Christ is the big issue. So my conversations from now on are going to have to be how to show this person the love of Christ. And then after they surrender to Christ, then they can start to see because the Holy Spirit will give them eyes to see. So here's the question today. Who do you need to talk to? I mean, have you been coming to church, but you feel like your worship's been hindered? It could be that God is saying, look, bro, leave your gift, go make it right, and come back. It's not God sending you away, it's God helping you make it right. As far as it depends on you, who's that person you need to call? Listen, they might be waiting for that phone call. I mean, it's, it's, it's bothering you. Maybe it's bothering them. Be the bigger person. You make the call. Don't wait for them. But you may find that you're an answer to prayer. You might find that there's, there's a lack of blessing in their lives because of the conflict. You 
You may be well-received. You might call someone up, and here's all you got to say, guys, is what you did really hurt me. But I believe we have a future in our relationship because of Jesus. Parents, maybe your kid is off the wagon, right? They're living in a lifestyle that doesn't please God. You're like, I didn't raise them that way. You stop talking to them. Here's a better idea. Say, you know what? I don't agree with these decisions in your life, but I love you and I will always love you. You may not be able to be at home right now. This is always your home. I will always be your father. I will always be your mother. We don't have to agree with people to love them, guys. Maybe you need to remind someone you love them today. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I didn't think I was worthy enough to be at church. None of us are. You just need to accept Jesus. He paid for all those sins. All you have to do is reach out and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died for me. Please forgive me and come into my life. He's just waiting to hear it. And then fill out that card and let us know because I want to talk to you. Find out how to help. But let's be people characterized by forgiveness, characterized by grace, known for reconciling relationships. Because when we do, we will look like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word of truth. It don't always feel good. But we believe that's for our good. Make us more like you. God, I pray that relationships and lives would be put back together today because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.